Welcome to CTV News Trendline with Michael Stittle and Nick Nanos. This winter in Nova Scotia, two women, Charlene Snow and Alison Holtzoff, died after lengthy emergency room waits. Uh, in this episode of Trendline, Nick and I want to do a deep dive on one issue, healthcare. And to do that, we're joined by health reporter and CTV News contributor Avis Favreau. Welcome, Avis. Hey, good morning. Uh, Avis, I know you've you've got some stories to tell, uh, having reported on on uh, the strain that our healthcare system is under. Yeah. So, you know, I want to just position it that I'm a huge fan of Canadian healthcare. Mm -hmm. I actually remember when my parents, who immigrated here from Italy, got a card that said OHIP, the Ontario mm -hmm. Health Plan. And they were so happy and so excited. So it was 1969 because I realized they had been paying every time they had a baby, you mm -hmm. know, and this was completely liberating. So I, um, I'm a big fan, but uh, this is a very hard time. And you mentioned two stories. Those are just two. There are many stories of people waiting for care in hallways. You're seeing bits of it all over the media. And um, I think it's really not a good time. Um, you've got COVID that has added to the strain. Mm -hmm. But any healthcare worker will tell you this has been going on for a long time and governments have not really created robust systems. We'll get into that. But mm -hmm. I've heard from people waiting six months for an MRI, six weeks for a blood test. I've heard from people who are still waiting for cancer surgery in various parts of the country, um, people who have actually given up and flown to the United States for an MRI. Mm. I mean, we're we're experiencing, I believe, six million Canadians who don't have a GP. One gentleman who wrote to me said that if you want care in his BC community, you line up at a walk-in clinic at 7 a.m. and pray you get into the lineup by nine because all the spots are filled. Mm. Uh, this goes against everything we've thought about mm. health care and preventive health care in Canada. Six million people without a doctor or a nurse practitioner uh, it's crazy. Um, those are those are so some. That's those why are... people. That's why people are so mm. up in arms, and so uh, this is such an issue for them. There, those are some staggering numbers. Uh, and 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 Nick, I mean, there's so much frustration out there, and you've been tracking these issues of concern. Where where does healthcare stand right now? Well, it's it's a top issue, and Avis's point is this is like a white knuckle issue for Canadians because. You know, the thing is, is that, you know, most Canadians rely on a, on a public uh, health care system. You know, if you're in a car accident, you can get into the emergency pretty fast. But, you know, if you need a doctor and, you know, Avis was talking about all those things. But, you know, from a polling perspective, when we look at the trend line and the proportion of Canadians that uh, identify health care as their top unprompted national issue concern, we'll check out the trend line, at least back to 2005 up to present. And, you know, you can see that uh, right now we're at a high uh, even higher now than it was during the pandemic, where Canadians identify healthcare as their top unprompted national issue concern. So this is on the radar, but it's it's kind of like Groundhog. You remember Bill Murray's Groundhog Day, where mm -hmm. you wake up and he smashes the he, he smashes the alarm clock. Well, it's healthcare is kind of like that. It's like every day we wake up and it's like we're repeating and mm -hmm. having the same issues, the same stresses that we had before. But now to Avis's point, in this post-pandemic world, it seems to be becoming more intense, what I'll say, the pressure uh, on the system. And I think many Canadians are outright questioning 
how resilient is our healthcare system in uh, in meeting our demands? And I think when they're asked that question, they're like, I'm not really sure how Absolutely. ready, compared, or resilient mm. it is. Yeah, absolutely. Just to follow up, I sense a lot of anxiety. The sense is that the healthcare system won't be there when they need it. So where do you go if you don't have a doctor? You go to emergency. When you go to emergency, what's the average wait time? 22 hours. When you look across the board, 22 hours. Canadians know that there's a trade-off when it comes to healthcare. Everybody gets it, but everybody kind of waits. And they Mm. understand that. But 22 hours with rural emergencies closing where they have no doctors and walk-in clinics, it's just too much. And Mm. so you have people who have been in lockdown and everything who are now anxious about healthcare. And that's, I think, Nick, what's being reflected in your poll. People are worried. Maybe it's not there for me when I need it. Yeah. At the same time, they don't know what the solution is, Mm. Davis. Right. They know it's complicated. They know it's not necessarily throwing money at it, which creates another level. It's not like a lot of other public policy issues. And why don't we just use the pandemic as an example from an economic perspective? It's like, okay, so people might not be able to go to work. Businesses might be in stress. Let's spend stimulus and send checks to people. That's a lot easier than the healthcare system, which is much more complex. And I don't think Canadians, you know, Canadians are waiting to hear solutions, but I think we're not, we're not hearing a lot of solutions, at least from a lot of our political leaders. One, I mean, you've both touched on this. This is at the center of it is, is, is a political dispute, let's say from the federal government and and the provinces that there's a huge fight on right now. Um, They can't come up with a deal. Uh, One side's blaming the other. Uh, And I, 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 I don't see Canadians having a lot of, of faith because, as as we all know, this has been a, a fight that's been going on for pretty much as long as we've had health care. Well, I'd like to say, Michael, that the provincial governments position it as a fight. Mm. It's not a fight. Mm. Canadians want universal health care. They want reasonable delivery. They want preventive health care, which is what we've been sold on. Mm-hmm. But what I've noticed over my years of doing it, and most of my focus has been on health developments and health science, but as an outside observer, what's become very clear to me through my 30 plus years and the pandemic is that the provinces are all doing their own thing mm-hmm. and things don't line up and they're doing things for political expediency over the best interests of the public. I was at dinner with a healthcare worker at one of the hospitals and she said, absolutely. Every four years, it changes. The direction changes. Oh, we're gonna privatize this. Oh, we're gonna privatize long-term care and different things. So I think the public is confused and angry and that leads to the anxiety. We can go into this, but uh, you know, what do you think, Nick? Yeah, I would agree. And, you know, you you talk about, you know, privatization and, and long-term care facilities in research that we did during the last uh, provincial election in Ontario. And we asked Ontarians during the election, and this was for the gold mail, how they'd like to fund uh, long-term care facilities or help on that front. 74% said increase public funding to long-term health care facilities, while only 14% said that they would encourage private, a more private sector type uh, type stuff. And, and what the survey shows is that people overwhelmingly just want to make sure that the public system is properly funded, that, that it can hire the mm. people that we need. You know, like it's it's kind of a bit of a truism where you kind of, if you don't have enough people, it would be like, if this was a business, 
it would be like saying, I don't have enough employees and I need to change my business model. When the reality is, is you just need the employees to do the work and to deliver, uh, deliver just services to customers. So, you know, I think that the first step in kind of dealing with this crisis is talking about how many beds do we need? How many nurses, how many frontline healthcare workers are actually needed for the public healthcare system to deliver what it needs to deliver? And we've never talked about that. It's it's like they start going to kind of other mm. options as opposed to focusing on on the people in the system. On on that note, Nick, uh, we we've heard a lot of surveys about burnout amongst healthcare workers. Where we all know we need more healthcare workers, but through the pandemic, they've been through the ringer. And 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 what steps do provinces need to take to to counter burnout and and to and to increase their uh, their staffing? Well, you know, I'm not. I'm you know. The thing is, is that it's pretty clear, and Ava's probably is hearing this on the front line, that, uh, you know, all healthcare workers from top to bottom are under stress and are just, some of them are just walking away. Mm. Um, and, you know, the the pandemic was basically a, a tipping point for a lot of individuals who were already under stress. Like, we have to remember that the system before the pandemic was under stress, and then we had the pandemic put on top of that. Mm. And now we have extra kind of post-pandemic pressure now so you know it's should it really be a surprise that uh you know we're having we're having trouble attracting people into what, the healthcare sector what are you hearing about this avis i mean are, are you hearing about uh healthcare oh. workers that have had burnout and, and they're not coming back that's it well they're they're exhausted i have a, a young niece who became a nurse and uh, she's uh, working in a hospital and she's only been there a few years, but she's already talking about finding an exit ramp. That's like, hello, mm. it takes a long time to to train these healthcare workers. And there's absolutely no discussion, Michael, about retention. You don't poach other provinces or other countries' healthcare workers because we're all in the same boat. You grow them, you keep them. Good companies retain good employees, and I don't see any of that. I don't see provinces even counting properly on uh, resource human resource planning. Mm -hmm. I had to see the federal government hire a chief nursing officer, Lee Chapman, to kind of work on it on a national basis because the provinces are like, oh, we're short doctors. Oh, we'll take them from here. You mm -hmm. don't poach healthcare workers, you poach eggs. Yeah, right. and, absolutely. And, you know, th think of it this way. For average Canadians, they expect that generally you can get the same level of health care regardless of what province you live in or where you reside or where you happen to be. And this whole idea, it is to your point of of poaching healthcare workers from other places. This is where we actually do need a, a federal, a national retention strategy. Right. Because, you know, let's face it, it, it doesn't matter whether you're in British Columbia or whether you're in PEI or Ontario, you need to have a strategy to retain, uh, to encourage new people to go into the sector and to retain who you have. And uh, this would be like a natural place for the federal government to intervene. Right. Not necessarily on delivering mm -hmm. health care. You know, they could. But, you know, national standards, kind of national solutions that benefit everyone that cut across all the jurisdictions. It should be a no-brainer for the federal government to say, let's have a national retention strategy on HR and a, nat and a, and a national strategy for building the, 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 the talent and the, 
and the people that we need in the system to deliver the healthcare that people want. We're we're uh, going to talk about solutions uh, later, oh, but sorry. but I I wanted well I want to touch on one thing. Uh, you both mentioned planning and and short term planning, I think, versus long term planning, right? Uh, that the that the provinces and the federal government perhaps ha haven't been the greatest at long term planning. And that seems to be coming even more of an issue because of uh, our aging baby boomer population. I mean, we talked about the importance of funding long-term care homes, Nick. Uh, uh, Avis, how, how do you see this playing out? I mean, we have this big population boom, I, I, I suppose. And, and do you see any long-term planning? Uh, no, I don't. I mean, they can say they do, but honestly, I don't. What I have seen over my 30 years is this lurch in that they'll do things at the just after they're elected that might not be popular. You're witnessing that in Ontario, where they're talking about privatizing and moving things to, you know, pharmacies, which might be good or not. But they're only interested in their three to four years and what will it take us to get elected? What looks good? What, you know, what will appeal to the right voters at the right time? I don't see the structural uh, planning. I mean, I like any crown, any crown corporation, any corporation, as Nick says, plans ahead. Mm -hmm. We know we have an aging population. We know we have a rural population, but they're not doing it. So I feel, and I've seen it with privatizing long-term care in Ontario. I've seen it also with, you know, trying to lever the number of doctors. Hey, let's save money by having less doctors. That's what happened. And then they cut it back. And what happens? We don't have enough physicians. Did they put in nurse practitioners? No, it costs more. Um, <laughs> you know, so there's, I don't see it. And the last thing is that during COVID, I realized that the provinces are all doing different things. So for example, in seven provinces, they went, we're not going to deal with vaccine mandates. We need them on duty. And yet you have BC, Ontario, Nova Scotia saying, oh, no, we don't want previously unvaccinated nurses, even if they've had COVID, healthcare mm. workers. What, is the science different in BC than it is in Quebec? Is the science different in Alberta than Ontario? So the provinces can't even come up with a you know, similar healthcare plan based on science. Mm. So I, I actually have been listening to people who say it's time for the provinces not to run healthcare because they make it a political game. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, Nick, I, I just, before we were very close to talking about these these ideas that are being proposed, but I was wondering, Nick, if you, if you could speak more to the the demographics uh, playing into this and, and the average age of, of Canadians now. Well, uh, Michael and Avis, the intersection of demographics and the human resource crisis in our health sector is going to be a massive car crash hmm. period full stop you know check out here's a here's a trend line uh of the median age of the population back from the 1970s to to now and you can see that we're just getting older now if you notice in the in the last year it's actually flattened a little bit it's because of all the new canadians that uh, that have arrived in canada you know if, we, if we're letting if if we bring in 400 500,000 new canadians that might flatten the curve a little bit but the the reality is is that we're gonna we're gonna be hitting uh as soon as the, the baby boomers get a little older um we're, we're gonna we're gonna hit a wall and it's going to be a, a massive crisis where demogra where the demographic bubble hits what i'll say the hr crisis that we're having 
in the in the healthcare system, and uh, it's it's going to be ugly. And to Avis's point, I don't understand how anyone can't see the trend line on demographics and can't see what's happening in terms of HR retention and put those two things together and say, we must do, we have to deal with both of these issues. The fact that our population is aging, but also at the same time that we need to make sure that we retain kind of and have the healthcare workers, the frontline healthcare workers that are necessary. But it's, it's I don't know what it is. It's like denial Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I don't know, Avis, what we want to call it denial, kind of. <laughs> I, I think it just, it doesn't serve their purposes because it's a short three to, you know, three to four year window. And if they fix the system in a good way and they lose the election, then the next government gets credit. Yeah. I I don't know. Uh, and I just, I just, I think I've just become uh, skeptical. And I, I noticed that when I put out a little note to ask people about what's going on, the immense amount of skepticism among Canadians yeah. that the current system will work ever uh, is very low, that very high for skepticism. They just don't believe there's really an incentive to long-term planning. There's no visionaries to say, okay, let's chart the right course. There's a yeah, lot of talk. Avis, you remember what I remember, and you, you know, you talked about the story of your parents and getting their OHIP card. There was a time, it might sound like that was a unicorn, there was a time when people were proud of the healthcare system, proud of what Canada had done in terms of a public healthcare system. And it was something that we talked about, that we talked about when we'd visit our friends and relatives in the United States and in other countries and stuff like that. We're not there anymore because you know what? To your point, if anybody's talking about the healthcare system, it's about going to the emergency room where your child might have a sprained arm or a broken leg and it's not life threatening and they're waiting or they or they just have a non-threatening issue but they don't have a doctor and they're in the emergency room for 20 hours. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're 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 going to take a quick break but when we come back uh because we want to leave on a an optimistic note in this in this episode, we're going to talk about solutions for our healthcare system. Uh, welcome back, uh, Avis. I want to talk more about solutions for our healthcare system, and and one of the things you you talked about is, is uh, proposals to take some of the jurisdiction away from the provinces. Well, I've been hearing people unhappy with the idea of how do we plan to fix this, and we understand that the prime minister and the provinces are going to be making some sort of a deal on February the seventh where there will be more money given to the provinces to fix healthcare. But I think what people don't understand is that when money goes into provincial coffers, and correct me if I'm wrong, the government doesn't have to, the provinces don't have to say where it goes. Mm. And there's been a long history of the money going and not having a, a clear idea of the deliverables and the return of the income that they're getting in terms of patient well-being and care, timely care and the whole thing. Um, so I've been hearing people saying, okay, if provinces get more money, it's the definition of insanity. Doing the same thing over again, expecting mm-hmm. a different outcome. I'm- and that we have to look at a bigger structural issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, with many people and some doctors. And then I discovered a petition that is saying, make the deliverables, make the big planning, the human health resources planning, make the rural health care 
uh, picture, federal. Make it, give the federal government more power to really make the changes that Canadians want for healthcare and put it on a steadier ship than provincially run healthcare, which is that three to four year lurch between elections and liberals and NDP and, and that. And I'm mm. hearing more of it. I mm. don't know. Uh, it's worth the debate. I'm, I'm oh, curious. I, I think yeah, we need, I'd like it, to see an intervention. Here's what mm -hmm. I'd like to see. I'd like to get the premiers and the prime minister in the room, and then I'd like to have patients come to them and mm -hmm. tell them what they have to deal with so that they have to hear it firsthand. And then I'd like front care healthcare workers to go in and kind of tell them their story so that they can get it into their mind that they need to act, that this is more than just a political issue and that they need to start making long-term decisions that are in the best interests of all the citizens of Canada. Because right now, it's I feel it's like Charlie Brown's teacher. It's like, wah, 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 wah. I'm, I feel like we're hearing the same thing and mm -hmm. the same type of posturing. We need to think outside of the box. Avis, to your point about, about you know attaching strings, that's the way it used to be. In the olden days, the federal government would fund university and colleges and there'd be strings attached. They'd fund the healthcare there'd be strings attached. As soon as that was removed, and I believe that was in the 1990s that that was removed, uh, it changed everything because that accountability that you're talking about and that measurement and the deliverables was basically severed between the between at least the federal funding that went to provinces with certain intentions and what actually happened at the provinces where the provinces basically decided what to do with the mm -hmm. funds that they received based on what they thought was most important. Uh, you know Nick, why those ties yeah. were severed? Do you know why those ties were severed? Was it political, provincial? It demands? was not. I, I remember. I remember sitting with a cabinet minister uh, one time, and uh, I'd asked that cabinet minister, "What was you know things pollsters ask? What was your most? What's the one decision that you regret most as a cabinet minister?" And that cabinet minister said. Uh, when we removed the strings that were attached to funding from the federal government and, and mm. transfers, they said that was a, in retrospect, at the time, we thought it was good because it was part of the federation and us working together and allowing the provinces the fiscal flexibility to do what they needed, mm -hmm. right? And that we weren't going to be as directive and let the provinces figure out what they needed. And I think that was also in the context of Quebec wanting more latitude and uh, not wanting those strings attached and i remember the cabinet minister saying that was the worst decision that uh, that i sat at a cabinet table that was made because it was just wrong for canada we did it because we thought it would be good for the federation in a kind of post-referendum world but it was fundamentally bad and we have to go back to that to to, to that point though nick i mean how feasible is that can once those strings are cut can you can you bring them back i think you can bring them back it'll just cause a massive stink oh my mm. god all the provinces, the provincial premiers will be up in arms because they'll say, how dare you tell us? But you know what? The federal government has a responsibility. It collects taxes and it disperses taxes. It has it has a responsibility to account for the money that all the money that it spends and all the money that it transfers. That's that's my view. At would least. you would you see that as a big political win for the liberal government if they were to pull that off? I, I don't know if they could. I don't know. Do you think they could? I it would be a win, but could they do it? Would would the province of Quebec ever agree to strings attached to funding from the federal government mm. now that they've had that? I don't know. But it's, Quebec, I mean, if, Quebec if, if, generally, 
Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, if Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is looking for a major legacy before he potentially steps down, I mean, yeah, well, he, he'd have to quit politics right afterwards. I just because like <laughs> he's not going to be popular in Quebec. That's, that's very oh, true. Absolutely not, because you see provinces moving towards like Ontario moving to privatize things because you know never waste a good crisis. Uh, we didn't hear it in Ontario during the election that they were going to do more private clinics uh, mm. and move that direction. Uh, but, you know, they're doing what works for whatever the conservative government here wants to accomplish. Um, I do want to say just on the private health care system, I think that most Canadians don't realize we already have a lot of private health care. Every yeah. GP across Canada is a private corporation. A lot of the hospitals are private, not-for-profit corporations. Then there's the famed um, uh, Schuldice Clinic, which is grandfathered mm -hmm. in. And part, of, and part of that is that they just do hernias and high volume places have the best outcomes. So when you hear private care, it's a bit of a trigger word, a trigger mm -hmm. word. And I just want people to sort of go, well, what kind yeah. of private, private and, care? Avis, to your point, I think, most patients would be surprised that their physician pays for their office, pays for the staff, pays for the nurse, pays for all the equipment and stuff like that, which is why they're a small business. And it's it's a bit unfair when they talk about these billings, you know, they, they report on the billings of some physicians and they don't report, well, hey, you know, yes, that's what they're billing. But the reality is, is how many staff are they paying for? It's, this isn't kind of like there's because people confuse the billing with the salary or how much a, a physician might be making when the reality is they've got they're paying for rent. They're paying for the receptionist. They're paying for all of the equipment, all of the overhead, all of the staff that they might need. And, uh, you know, it's, so in a, in a way, there's a, there are a lot of things that are kind of, to your point, misunderstood in our system that there there is some private role in, in certain specific things already. But thanks. Uh, hmm. I'm curious, Avis, what what uh, frontline healthcare workers think about what Ontario Premier Doug Ford is, is doing with, with using private clinics to ease up uh, some of the backlog in uh, surgeries. Well, it's a mixed response, Michael. I mean, you know, the ones that understand the role of private in the context of how healthcare private is done at the moment, understand that in order to clear things up, you might need a, a bit of that. It's just the way in Ontario it's done. So for example, a lot of the cataract surgery has gone to one particular company that has turned out to be a donor to the conservative government. So I think there's skepticism. The other thing too, though, again, is that how it looks or who it benefits. People are skeptical about that. Instead of listening to the frontline workers who are saying, hey, maybe it's better if we improve workflow. Uh, so maybe um, I remember a crisis in the 1980s when I was reporting on people who couldn't get heart surgery and they were dying waiting for bypass surgery. And the health system in Ontario and I believe other places started to fix it by having specialized centers that were then, you know, patients would get it to the next available hospital surgeon who could perform it. And it worked out, the triage system. Hmm. So, you know, you, if you listen to your frontline workers, they have good solutions. They're not stupid. They're there. They understand how it works and how to make it better. Instead, the government comes down with these top-down decisions. And hmm. 
you know, less so in other provinces, but it raises a lot of questions. And I think there's, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're in a way, nurses are in conflict with the Ontario government. They're capping their pay. They're not working on retention. Uh, mm -hmm. Physicians are tired and leaving. I mean, it's just, I don't think that they have generally the support of the health system, the healthcare workers, I should say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Avis, I, I was curious if, if you've heard of any other, uh, you know, ideas from doctors and nurses about long-term solutions for this. Well, um, a shout out to the frontline workers who have been working like crazy mm -hmm. and are still doing the work. Um, I was talking to nurses when my mom was in hospital with COVID um, and she passed in September, but I watched these nurses work so hard, mm. so hard. And they were saying there were simpler solutions. Number one, retention. Number yeah. two, you don't make people work crazy shifts because you don't have staff. You have enough staff to back up what's <laughs> needed, right? Um, they were exhausted. I mean, I felt so sorry for them. And if we weren't there 24 seven with my mom, nobody would be with her. It just, mm. that's just the way it is. Um, I've had uh, some doctors talk about just forget the provinces and look at a federal leadership. But also I've had people say, we came up with solutions in 2002 with the Romano report, 47 recommendations, a lot of them were never taken into practice. Uh, and a lot of them, I, I reread them the other day and I thought, well, why don't we do some of these like electronic medical records so that someone can get care in different areas without a lot of paperwork? You know, why do we have duplication between provinces and a lot of managerial staff uh, as opposed to it going more to healthcare? Like, you know, that, that report has some a lot of really great ideas that if they had been implemented, might make our healthcare system right now have been much more robust and look much better than it is and have much happier staff working across the board. But, you know, you can mm -hmm. pose suggestions, but if there's no political will and if the electorate is kind of like, help mm -hmm. us, what, what, what do you do? And I, th I think, Avis, to your point, Part of the problem is mixed accountability, right? So, you know, uh, the feds play a significant role in funding healthcare and the provinces are delivering. And that mixed accountability has led to mixed results, period, full stop, right? And it's just, it just messes things up uh, yeah. because, uh, you know, there, there needs to be, uh, there needs to be uh, to kind of, uh, there, there needs to be someone accountable really uh and i think right now just from a governance perspective there's not one level of government that's fully accountable uh for healthcare and until we and you know for average canadians they they don't really care right they don't really care what what the governance is behind the curtain as long as they get the healthcare as long as they have access to public healthcare and they get it in a, in, a, in a, i'll call it a reasonably timely fashion because to your point they know that it's a public healthcare system. They know there's you got to wait a little bit, that it's not going to be on demand. Uh, but you know, the thing is, is that lack of accountability. And you know, and I think someone needs to take leadership on this. And I, and I'm not sure whether whether provinces or the federal government 
uh, are hot to take leadership on this, maybe because it's a tough issue and not necessarily a political political winner. This would be a great issue for someone that's going to retire. I just like to say that, like kind of like a legacy issue to say, okay, I'm not going to be the leader of whatever, mm-hmm. but for the next two years, I'm going to do this, and I'm not, you know, and and to just push it through, uh, push through some leadership and, and accountability because I think the problem is is that for anyone that's seeking reelection, it's kind of like Vietnam, right? You get mired, you know, in in jungle warfare and you're just in a swamp and that there's no political win. And if there is a political win, you will never be around as a politician to do the victory lap. You'll be, you'll be around as a, as an individual retired politician to take credit, but there's no short, there'll be no short-term gain. Question for you, Nick, what level of government do you think should be accountable? Well, um, I can just speak to the numbers. Canadians expect national standards and they expect provinces to be able to deliver or regardless of where you live to get a reasonably comparable uh, level of of healthcare service. So, you know, I would say that if you asked average Canadians, what they'd want to see is the federal government lead on standards and implementation, but that there'd be kind of local operationalization of whatever the national plan was. Right. So that if you're in a, and why don't we use an example? If you're in a rural hospital, you'd have to meet the national standard, but you still have some flexibility to deal with your special, your special patients and the, the fact that you're dealing in a rural hospital as opposed to a hospital in a, in a high density urban area. But I, I think for average Canadians, if you'd ask them who should lead, they'd say healthcare is a, public healthcare is a national priority. We need national standards. The federal government has to pony up and set those standards, but you know we should we should be allowing local healthcare facilities some flexibility to meet the needs of their unique communities. I think that's probably the way they would go, but that it would mean a heavier hand for the federal government on this. I don't know. What do you think? I I agree. I think people don't want the fighting. I yeah. think people I hear say, "Stop the political games. Stop." politicizing healthcare, which is what we saw happen to a large degree during COVID. I don't want to hear what works for, you know, your government, your government, and then switching around. Uh, The pandemic taught us that we need some sort of more national cohesiveness in it. And I agree with you. People want national standards. And there's no reason why someone in Northern Ontario should have their emergency closed because there aren't enough doctors and they're all in Toronto or, you know, other places. Um, So I think we're at that point, but I think people don't know how to ask for it or get it because when they vote, they're voting on X and then the government in power can change it to Y Mm -hmm. uh, because there is no leadership. So how do you know when a public person, the only tool that we have is to vote and the votes don't seem to matter, how do you enact this? I think uh, I think we're going to leave it there, Avis. Uh, thank you so much for for joining us, uh, joining Nick and I, and thank you so much for your for your insights on this uh, special episode. Thanks, everyone. You're welcome. Bye bye.